My Time or My Times Are in Your Hand is the title. Psalm 31. So we're going to take a break from the book of Exodus. We're going to go into a psalm which could be described as a cry of distress. When we did go through the book of Psalms uh, together as a congregation, this is not one that we looked at by God's providence, but it is uh, an amazing psalm. It is a psalm of David. You'll notice at the top, it is for the choir director. Some people see in the choir director, the ultimate choir director, God himself. Others would say that this is the human choir director and that the 150 psalms that you have in your Bible are basically the hymn book of Israel. They would sing them at different seasons of feasts and festivals that they would have and times of worship. And David is responsible for much of the psalms. He didn't write every psalm, but he wrote a good majority of them. And he is our author. And we have entitled this, My Times Are In Your Hand. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for all the folks that have joined us, those who have joined us via live stream, and those who may watch this later. We want to lay this time at your feet. Pray that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit. Pray that you would show us what you want us to see, promises that we can stand upon, uh, the idea of what we're to do in times of distress, and to say with resolve, my times are in your hand, Lord. And I pray for your people. There are individual trials going on here. We look at the world. We look at so many different things that are going on in a given period of time. And this psalm is going to speak to those things and give us a roadmap about how to deal with it and what to do. We often feel so helpless, Father. We, we often don't know what to do or even how to pray, but thank you for Psalm 31. I pray that it would be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, medicine for our soul, and that you be glorified in the way we respond to it. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So you'll notice that we don't have to guess about who the author is. It's a Psalm of David, and uh, we don't know the backdrop. Sometimes you'll read a Psalm and you'll see the exact setting of the psalm. It was written in light of this, or this was going on. But we don't know what was going on, and so we just have a little bit of conjecture, but probably the best conjecture that I've heard is that David wrote this psalm in the wake of Absalom's rebellion. Let me just tell you what was going on. So Absalom was David's son, and Absalom attempted a coup where he would steal the throne from David, who was the king. And ultimately how this ended up is Absalom began to kind of just wiggle his way in and he began to breed some discontent among the people and he stepped in and tried to take his father's role and basically tried to paint himself as the good guy and dad as the bad guy through some political maneuvering and shenanigans. And then finally what ended up is that he came with an army of people into the holy city, Jerusalem, where the king reigned. And it got so difficult and so hard that David had to quickly depart from the city. And these accounts are written in First and Second Samuel. And as David is leaving the city, he takes what he can. They're heading towards the east, the Mount of Olives. And they look back to the city and all the people are weeping and crying because they know what this means. They've, they've basically been supplanted and they head off to the east, and David's kind of looking back, and he has to deal with a lot of stuff. And the emotion of leaving the city of Jerusalem was hard enough, but to know that your own son was planning your demise. In fact, we know that Absalom wanted to kill David and take his spot. As the story unfolds through uh, a lot of different things that you can read about in these accounts, Absalom end up, ends up being killed by one of David's generals. And when David hears that Absalom has died, even though we're going to read, you know, part of his desire was that God would deal with his enemies. But when he hears of Absalom's demise, he famously cries, Absalom, oh Absalom, my son Absalom is dead. And David is a broken man. And it may well be that uh, Psalm 31 has that backdrop uh, behind it. David's own personal struggle his own time of distress. We know that David knew times of war. We know that he took on Goliath. We know that he was in the front of the battle many times. So he was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a warrior. And he knew what it meant to fight in physical battles, but he also knew how to fight spiritual battles. And this is what we're gonna get in terms of Psalm 31, is we're gonna get a bit of a roadmap about how we deal with times of distress, times of war, times of betrayal, and all of that. 
This, is, this could be categorized as a prayer or a song, because remember, all the psalms are songs. It is a cry for help in a time of deep distress, if you're taking notes, and it is fitting for God's people to call upon his strength. We're going to get a roadmap about how to call upon the name of the Lord. Just two quick verses to set this up. 2 Samuel 22, 7 says, In my distress, David speaking, that was good timing. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God, and from his temple he heard my voice. And my cry for help came into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of heaven trembled, and they were shaken because God was angry. David prayed, and the Lord seems to respond with anger from heaven or judgment from heaven. And then he ends 2 Samuel, this portion, which is also in one of the Psalms. He says, this is 2 Samuel 22, 18 and 19. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. And so that's the essence of this psalm. It's a cry to God in a time of distress, personal distress, corporate or national distress for God's help. If you want to flip back to Psalm 28, verses 1 and 2, you get a taste of this kind of uh, cry when David writes these words. Psalm 28, 1 and 2, he says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications or my prayers when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. You will see a lot of this kind of talk in the Psalms. And some have described uh, this Psalm as an undulating Psalm. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Michael? Well, if you're a golfer, you know that there's certain golf courses that have greens that have undulations on them. And that means that they go up and down. And these greens are very humbling to a, a mediocre golfer. Because the undulations will take your ball and run it off the green and just a bunch of unfair things about the game of golf. But we won't go there for it this morning. But the description of undulating has this idea. This is actually in the MacArthur Study Bible. He says, David will once again walk the road from anguish to assurance. Or we might put it this way. He will go from peaks to valleys. A lot like our lives this psalm is a real honest wrestling with faith, with personal trauma, with questions that we might have about God, but always coming back to a sure, steadfast hope in the God of the Bible, because we know enough to put our hope in him, despite all the twists and turns and ups and downs of our world. And then, of course, as we look at war and unspeakable things that happen in the world, it, it it, it hurts our hearts. We, don't know, we often don't know wanna, what to do, and David's gonna give us a roadmap by the Holy Spirit. Here's how it starts. Psalm 31.1 says, In you or in thee, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In thy righteousness, deliver me. Now you can see the tone of the whole psalm. Verses one through five, for you note-takers, is a declaration of God being David's refuge. You can see that in the beginning of verse one. He is a call, he's calling for help, let me never be ashamed, and he's calling for deliverance. He is surrendering trust to God. David has already made the Lord his refuge, but he's renewing it here in Psalm 31, as we have to do. We have to often renew our times of faith, especially in the battles of life. Joshua is getting ready to face the walls of Jericho, and he's walking around, and a uh, a man in uh, armor shows up and he's got a drawn sword and Joshua asks the legitimate question, who are you for, us or for our enemies? And he says, as the captain of the host of the Lord, I have now come. I'm not for them or for you per se. I'm on, the, I'm on God's side. And the implied question is, whose side are you on, right? And sometimes we think about, you know, battles or we think about, you know, a team playing in a Super Bowl, for example, and both people have Christians on both sides, and maybe they're praying, whose prayers does God hear, and who, do, who does he answer, and does he even care about sports? I personally think he cares about my specific teams, but uh, anyway, that's a different story. 
So David has taken refuge in the Lord, and that's what we have to do when we're going through questions and trials. We have to formalize it. Nowhere else do I fly for shelter, says Spurgeon. In you, O Lord, God is always our beginning and our end. And we're going to end with hope in the Lord, as you will see at the end of this psalm. But David's going to declare, I have taken refuge in you. We must formalize this in prayer. In Ruth 2.12, it is spoken to Ruth by the kinsman redeemer. May the Lord reward your work, Ruth 2.12, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. The picture of refuge is a place of shelter. It's a place of safety. It's pictured in a mother bird, and the little chicks will run under her wings for protection and safety. David opens the psalm that way, and then he says to God, incline your ear to me. That means, would you bow down? Would you condescend to my low estate? And we would just put it simply this way. Would you hear my prayer, O Lord? Notice verse 2. Would you rescue me quickly? Sometimes there's an urgency about matters. If this is, if the backdrop is David quickly departing from Jerusalem under threat of his own personal demise from his son, you can see the urgency of the matter. And we often have that thing on our refrigerator, Lord, give me patience and please hurry. Anybody ever post that on your refrigerator? Yeah. Well, there is an urgency sometimes to what we're facing. And so David is being honest. He's saying, Lord, would you give a quick response? I know you move according to your will, but I'm asking you to bow down to my need, and I'm also asking you to move quickly. Would you be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me? There's a bold request for an attentive hearing ear and a speeding help or aid. Please hear my prayer, and please act quickly. Some of you, you know, you've prayed over things like the need for a job or uh, There may be a crisis with your health or a relationship. And, you know, sometimes we ask the Lord, would you please move rapidly or speedily? And my definition of speedily is not always the same as the Lord's. Can I get a witness? And there are things that he does in those times of testing where he stretches our faith. And David had to deal with the fallout. We're going to see that some of that fallout was his own fault. It was his own sin. Something I was thinking about is the word incline at the beginning of verse two, because there are many scriptures that move the word incline in both directions. In other words, we might say, God, would you incline your ear to me? But God also says, would you incline your ear to me? Incline goes in both directions. Here's a couple of examples. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain is Psalm 119, verse 36. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice deeds of wickedness, is Psalm 141, verse 4. The writer of Proverbs uh, says to us, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding, Proverbs 2, verse 2. We want God to hear us, but God wants us to hear him. And oftentimes our prayers are not informed by the word of God or the will of God because, frankly, we, would, we might have to admit either we're a newer Christian or sometimes we honestly don't know how to pray. The disciples watched Jesus in his three, three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry, and they said to him, Lord, would you teach us to pray? They watched how he prayed, and they wanted to be taught. And that's a wonderful starting point. I would also say, even if you've been in the Lord for decades, you could still say, Lord, teach me how to pray right now. We have a promise in Romans 8 that when we don't know what to pray or how to pray, the Holy Spirit will help us, amen? And so sometimes we need a nudge to a scripture or to something that will kind of anchor our prayers. Would you incline your ear to me? God might say back to us, would you incline your ear to me? Would you start listening maybe more than you're talking? In 1 Kings chapter 8, if you turn there for a moment, it's gonna be a little bit back in your Bible. We'll try to put it up on the screen 1 Kings chapter 8, David, uh, excuse me, Solomon is dedicating the temple, and he has just finished praying, and there's some insightful stuff I just want to share with you, just a few verses here. 1 Kings 8, 54, the dedication of Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 8, 54, it came about when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord. He arose from before the altar of the Lord. 
from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. And he stood 55 and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant, 57. May the Lord our God be with us. As he was with our fathers, may he not leave us or forsake us. That he may, notice, incline our hearts to himself, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. Turn back to Psalm 31. May the Lord incline our hearts back to him. I've been looking at America, you know, ever since I became a pastor and began to teach the Bible in the early 90s. And I've watched America drift more and more away from the Lord. And I've heard many prayers for revival. And I've prayed many prayers for revival. And sometimes I wonder, as I look at the last two years, I look at the, the, all the COVID stuff and all the difficulty that the world has been through. And I ask myself, what is it going to take for our hearts to be inclined back to the Lord? How much has to happen in your personal life or in the world for us finally to say, Lord, you are our refuge. You are our strength. You are the answer. You're the reason that we're here. You're the reason that we have life and breath in our lungs, etc." Amen? Amen? And so to me, would you be a rock? Would you be in Getty to me, a place of, uh, you know, kind of a, a sanctuary in the desert, uh, a place where there's the natural waters that flow and the hiding places that come, would you be a stronghold? Look at verse three. Would you be, you are my rock and my fortress. For your namesake, you will lead me and guide me. This sounds a lot like Psalm 23. David, for David, the Lord was his rock and his fortress. And I have to ask the question, is he mine? Is he yours? The Lord is my shepherd. Then I can claim the promises I shall not want. I'll walk by green pastures and still waters, etc. The double uh, word indicates an urgent need, says Spurgeon, my rock, my fortress. We require double direction. For we are fools and the way is rough. He says, lead me as a soldier, guide me as a traveler, lead me as a babe, guide me as a man. He says, uh, the argument used in one, is one in which is the fetched, fetched from the armory of free grace and not for one's own sake, but for the sake of the Lord, for his great name, would you guide me? You see, oftentimes that's what our prayers are missing is the glory of God's name in a situation. I found myself praying, you know, this week, Lord, if there's anything happening in this part of the world that is part of your sovereign plan and that will bring you glory, then let it be so. But if it's not, would you please stop it? Because the ultimate desire is the glory of your name and for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you shift my prayer life away from my normal laundry list of me, myself, and I? And times of war and times of trouble will do that. And David is obviously making it personal. He's saying, Lord, for your namesake, would you lead me and guide me? Will you pull me, verse four, out of the net? We can think of what Absalom was planning for David, which they have secretly laid for me. You are my strength. No doubt that believers sometimes found that, find themselves in a net. And David did. It's a, it's a metaphor, but David found himself wound up in a net. And certainly as believers, sometimes that's where we are. We try to avoid sin. We try to avoid potholes. But sometimes we get caught in the net of the enemy. And he's very resourceful. And he, he has schemes, as we know from Ephesians chapter 6. And sometimes if you find yourself caught in the net, that's not the end of the story. God can, notice, pull me out of the net that they've secretly laid for me. And sometimes we know that we've created a net of our own doing. David is going to get to that. He knows his iniquity is at the bottom of this. In fact, God told David, what you've done in secret with Bathsheba, I'm gonna allow it to happen openly with your son. David knows, and this makes it even more painful, that somewhere at the bottom of the events of Absalom's rebellion is his own personal sin, David's own sin. 
It's not being the best father, not being the best husband, and not honoring God the way that he should. And he was in a net. Part of it, he had, he had wound himself, if you will. But here's the good news for believers. God can pull you and me out of a net, for he, look at the end of verse four, thou art my strength. And then this incredible verse, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Thou hast ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Many of you are resonating with the verse. It looks familiar to you because it's from the cross that Jesus quotes Psalm 31, verse 5. One of the final things he says from the cross is, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. By the way, Jesus did not go, you know, uh, anywhere that some of the word faith teachers say he went, like he went into hell to suffer after that. No, he didn't. All his suffering was done at the cross. He didn't have to go into hell and suffer at the hands of Satan as the demons were dancing a jig around him, as some of them have put it. That's a lie. Jesus paid for your sin in full at the cross. It was over. It is finished. Whatever else happened after that, and there's some mystery to that, Jesus put his spirit, or his soul, if you will, into God the Father's capable hands. And this has been a nighttime prayer among Jewish mothers. They will teach Psalm 31.5 to their children. Into your hand I commit my spirit. I grew up in a Roman Catholic Italian household, and we learned the prayer Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, what an unnerving prayer to teach to a kid. (laughs) You may die tonight, (laughs) but this is a prayer. You can pray. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Where? Where are we going? You heard the preacher who said he announced to the congregation, who wants to go to heaven? And Everybody raised their hand except for a little kid sitting in the back, and he talked to him in the lobby after the service. He said, why didn't you raise your hand? He said, I want to go to heaven. I just thought you were taking people right now. (laughs) (laughs) You have ransomed me. Look at the end of verse 5. Oh, Lord, God of truth. The word ransom there is a word of the gospel. In fact, uh, some of you have watched programs about ransoms, and you know that when someone demands a ransom, they've taken something precious. Often it's a person, right? And they demand a ransom be paid. Jesus Christ said this in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In 1 Timothy 2, 6 Paul is talking about the gospel and he talks about Jesus Christ being a ransom. He says, and he gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And so Jesus Christ encourages us in the new covenant that we can commit our spirit to him, verse five, because he's ransomed us. He's bought us back. He's redeemed us, brought us back to the God of truth and I love that statement where David says, you're the God of truth. I I commend my spirit to you. You know really what's going on here. You're the God of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one's coming to the Father except through me. The first five verses under our belts, we move to verses six through eight. If you're taking notes, these are verses of comforting gratitude and committed resolve. I hate those who regard vain idols but I trust in the Lord. Now we're gonna see in this psalm a form of what's called an imprecatory prayer. An imprecatory psalm is 14 of the 150 psalms are imprecatory. You say, what does that mean? I just like saying it, imprecatory. (laughs) Imprecatory means to call upon God to judge certain people. It's not a nice form of a song, but it's a song nonetheless, and it's a worship song. And David says, I hate those who regard vain idols or empty idols, but by contrast, I trust in the Lord. 
I hate those who are double-minded, Psalm 119, verse 13. David hated them, says Spurgeon, for hating God. Those who exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible mankind or animals, etc. David said he hated that. And of course, it says, I hate those who do this. And I think that there is a place for biblical righteous anger. In fact, right now, we would look at world events right now, and we would say, I hate that, and it's hard to move that hate away from the individual. But let me qualify by saying this, that whenever we pray something like this, or we voice something like this, may it always be balanced with the grace of the gospel and knowing where we've come from. Because we can look at people, and they could be personal enemies of us or enemies on the other side of the world, and we could say things like that, but we know that God loves the world, and we know that our deep desire is to see people get saved. But David voices something that's some hard truth here. I hate those who worship idols. They should know better. They're pretenders. And then, it, then notice the resolve. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. There is a place in many of the Psalms for something called healthy self-talk. Amen? Now, you all know that you're talking to yourselves all the time, and you have an inner voice that talks to you, and some of you can get away with it more now because you can act like you're on the phone, and <laughs> nobody will look at you weird. It used to be that if people did that, we, we were concerned, but anyway. But you, you have an inner voice. And sometimes you can feel yourself letting things get away from you. Negative, uh, destructive self-talk can really hurt you. And it, it could be a voice like this, I'm no good, or this is terrible, or every time I walk outside, it's cloudy, or why does there have to be traffic on the 91 right now? You realize there's always traffic on the 91. And then on the 15, to add... It used to be you could just shoot down the 15 to San Diego. Not anymore. And sometimes we feel like it's being done to us. Or I'm always behind the guy that's not in a hurry when I'm in a hurry. And it's often when I'm headed to church. And then I sometimes have to say, oh, Lord, I hope they're not going to living truth because I've been driven like a Christian this morning. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> Rejoice in the Lord Again, I say, rejoice. We're studying Philippians on Wednesday nights. We just started it. Paul writes that from jail, joy from jail. How do you do that? How do you exhort other people to rejoice when you're in some form of house arrest? Paul was able to do it because he could always rejoice in the Lord. And that's what David does. I rejoice, look at verse seven. I will rejoice and be glad in your, this is the Hebrew word, hesed. Whenever you see loving kindness or mercy in some of the translations, this is God's faithful, covenant, loyal love. I know one thing, Lord, even if everything else is chaotic, your said, your faithful love is immovable. And more than that, you know my affliction and you know the troubles of my soul. It's so good to know the God of the Bible knows my trouble. Spurgeon puts it this way, the Lord Jesus knows us in our pangs in a peculiar sense. By having a deep sympathy towards us, towards us in them all, when no others can enter into our griefs from want of understanding them experimentally, Jesus dives into the lowest depths with us, comprehending the direst of our woes because he has felt the same. Jesus is a physician who knows every case. Nothing is new to him. When we are so bewildered as to not know our own state, he knows us all together. He has known us and will know us. And then he says, oh, for grace to know him more. And this is what we can know about our great physician, that he empathizes and sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as us, yet without sin. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, therefore, you can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy to help in time of need. The little phrase to help in Hebrews chapter four is a Greek word called botheo. It's taken from sailing. 
And what they would do in the ancient world is they would frap the hull of a ship. They would run cables along the hull of a ship to stabilize it in the storm. When we talk about grace to help in time of need, we're borrowing from nautical terminology where Jesus says, when you come to that throne of grace and I pour out stabilizing grace in your life, I may not necessarily remove the storm out of your life, but I will stabilize you in the storm if you call upon me. Amen? That is our God. And when we call upon him, he sympathizes. He knows the troubles of my soul. And that makes me want to rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. What, what was that? <laughs> Again, I say, Rejoice. all right, healthy self-talk. <laughs> thou hast not given me over into the hand of the enemy. Verse eight, thou hast set my feet in a large place. God always provides a way of escape. If it's not experientially, it will be spiritually. In fact, the idea of you have set my feet in a large place means the idea of room to breathe even when things are narrowing and difficult, I can find freedom to roam in Jesus Christ. Uh, any of you have ever had like an MRI done, you know the tightness of that machine. It's not a pleasant place to be. And then the noises that go with it. But you can be in a tight spot, but spiritually you can find freedom in Christ. Amen? And you might find yourself in a tight spot, certainly our world is in a tight spot right now, but God will give us room to breathe. Verse 9. The next section, the psalmist lays out the specifics of his situation and even his emotional state. And then he's going to once again return through the undulations to resolve to trust in God. This is often our process, and it's okay. Notice, be gracious to me, verse 9. Show me mercy. O Lord, I, for I am in distress. If you take the D-I off the word distress, you get the meaning. I'm stressed out. <laughs> and that's what David is saying. Can I get a witness? Anybody else out there? <laughs> stressed out. I think mothers uh, probably say this regularly. <laughs> I'm stressed out. Cut it out, right? And uh, stress is a very real thing that happens in our life. And it is okay to pray, Lord, I'm distressed. I, I don't know what to do. I, I'm, I'm frazzled. I'm in distress. My eye, notice, is wasted away from grief. We don't know if this is literal or a metaphor. It could be the idea of crying so much that the eyes are puffy and I can't take much more. He says, my soul and my body also. Terms that denote extreme fatigue and weakness. We all realize that one's emotional state is tied into the body. The soul and the body and the mind all kind of mysteriously work together so that when we're stressed out or something is heavy on our mind or whatever, it takes a physical toll. It could be in lack of sleep. It could be you lose your appetite. It could be a weakened immune system. It could be many uh, kind of manifestations of spiritual or emotional things going on. This is why you want to be emotionally healthy. And emotionally healthy people have healthy prayer lives and healthy self-talk. And sometimes you're going to have to catch yourself. Sometimes I say this in my mind. Stop it! Stop going down that way. Stop thinking that way. Enough! I have to come back to a promise. And we all wrestle with that. And David is saying, man, I, I, my life is spent, this is how he feels at the moment. This is not true. His whole life was not spent in sorrow, but this is how he feels. My life is spent with sorrow. My years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity. Now we get to his sin. He knows that the bottom of much of this is his own personal fall. My body has wasted away. He bears his soul to God and his wounds in faith. He is in the dungeon of distress, but he calls to the Lord. And I think all of us could say we could do more of that because oftentimes when we're in distress, we start going down our fix-it list, right? Well, we could do this, we could do that, we could do this. There's option three, three B, four A. But God wants us to come to him as the first line of defense. He's been crying so much, he wonders if his eyes can hold up anymore, and our eyes often do speak, don't they? We can look in people's eyes and we can see the toll, the cumulative effect of 
hard times or hard news or whatever it may be. And his enemies piled on. Physical, mental, moral, and spiritual vigor were all being challenged. And here's what happened. Because of all my adversaries, 11, I've I've become a reproach. That means like a joke, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street, they flee from me almost as if David were a leper. I am forgotten as a dead man. Sometimes we say out of sight, out of mind. I'm like a broken vessel, like a broken piece of pottery that someone just throws away into a potter's field or a trash can. I've heard the slander of many terrors on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they schemed to take away my life. But as for me, see the undulations? I trust in the Lord. I trust in thee, O Lord. And I say, you are my God. Now, this is what's going on. And it's some tough stuff. Adversaries, he's a joke. He's made fun of. He's forgotten as a dead man. I will tell you, Humanity will quickly forget you. Movie stars, athletes can tell you. You're on the top of your profession, dropping back to throw a pass, and all of a sudden, you get a broken leg or a compound fracture, and fans just say, who's the next guy? They don't look at your rehab, they don't, and they'll forget about you quickly. We can forget about movie stars, athletes, People, you know, who died in the last year, we almost forget. And David says, that's how I feel. This is the king talking. This is the anointed one of God. The man after God's own heart feels like a forgotten man. Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel forgotten. Maybe you feel abandoned. Maybe you feel discarded. Maybe people are talking behind your back. And David even says, my... If this is Absalom, my own son is scheming to kill me. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. And I say, you are my God. Our Lord was denied by Peter, betrayed by Judas, forsaken by all in his hour of utmost need. All the herd turn against the wounded deer. The milk of human kindness curdles when despised by when a despised believer is the victim of slanderous accusations. David says, I'm a forgotten man. And sometimes the stabs of those closest to us hurt the most. We're up at a men's retreat. Uh, some years ago, we were up in Big Bear. We had 40, about 40 guys up there. And we had a guest pastor who came to speak to us. And he was talking about how sometimes you get in a disagreement with your spouse. And he said, and it's almost like your wife can take the, the knife and stick it. And all the guys' eyes got really big. like, whoa. And we had some young teenagers. And they just, take it. And they're like, ooh, should I get married? I don't know. <laughs> well, look, it goes both ways, right? We all know how good we can be at kind of taking people down a notch with our words. The New Living Translation has it as a present tense. I am trusting you, O Lord. I am saying you are my God. And then our title, My Times Are in Your Hand. The New Living has it this way, My future is in your hands. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. This is our title, and this is the essence of what we're saying in this psalm. God's providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads. Amen. Do you believe that the Lord has the world in his hands? Do you believe the song? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me. (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) It'll just, it'll get uglier and uglier as I continue to sing. Do you believe that your future is in God's hands? Do you believe that the future of this world is in God's hands? If you believe that, Why do you fret so much? Now, I just said that to me. Because that's what I have to do. I have to challenge myself with what I actually believe. Do I believe that? If I believe that this world is going where God wants it to go, and yeah, humans cause trouble, and 
But I believe that God can even exploit the trouble for his good purposes. Then I have to say, but it's in your hands, Lord. We have, we have a gentleman, uh, I won't name his name right now, but he went through a battle uh, with cancer in the last decade or so. And every time I saw him, he said to me, it's in God's hands. It's in God's hands. And he was living it. It wasn't just a Christian you know, expression. He was living it. And God has walked him through that season. And he's, he's a light. And he was a light to people during that time. And he kept saying, it's in God's hands. And he believed it. And so here's what the psalmist says. He says, make your face shine upon your servant. Lord, would you give me the sunshine of heaven on my soul and on my face? Save me in your loving kindness. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord. For I call upon you, let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent in Sheol, which by the way means the grave. Let lying lips be dumb. If you have an ESV, it says mute. And if you have an NIV, verse 18 says, let their lying lips be silenced. And all God's people said, yeah. You mean that's biblical? And you could even sing it? I don't know what it sounded like. Shut their lying lips, oh Lord. Shut their lying lips. Let them be silent in the grave. Shut their lying lips. Now, if you left church today and you met somebody at a restaurant and they said to you, what, what psalm did you sing today? Oh, well, let's try it, family. Shut their lying lips, oh Lord. Shut their <laughs> It was a song. They sang it. Can you believe it? Someone needs to write some of the imprecatory psalms. Put it to music. You get cut off on the freeway. You could employ it. Shut their line. <laughs> Sorry. That's the only thing you're going to remember from this sermon now. I want to give you an example of an imprecatory psalm. We've just got a, gotten a taste of it. Uh, you can see at the event, end of verse 18, he says which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. So turn over to Psalm 58. So a little bit to your right. I'm going to show you one example of one of 14 imprecatory psalms. And as you turn there, uh, this week I saw a, uh, a YouTube video posted by a Christian, um, I would call him a Christian leader with a podcast. And he showed a video of a female comedian. I, her name escapes me at the moment. And she was doing a, a comedy routine, and she um, said a couple of crude things and made a couple of crude moves with her body. And she was talking about how she's traveled all over the place, and she's not gotten COVID. And she's kind of being prideful about it. And she said, because, and that's because Jesus loves me most. And all of a sudden, she took about 10 steps backward and fell down on her back and fractured her skull. And people in the audience were laughing because they thought she was joking. But she ended up in the hospital. And this particular commentator said he believes that God struck her. Now, I want to be very careful because I don't know what God did or didn't do. But the timing is interesting. That's because Jesus loves me most. And all of a sudden, you just see this boom, and she fractures her skull. And then... A couple days ago, I saw a headline, I don't know if it's true or not, that people are starting to question whether or not Putin is sick. He's been isolating himself. They're questioning his mental uh, health as well as perhaps he's sick in body. It would not surprise me for a moment if God did that. Do you know why? Because there's precedent for it. God killed Herod because he was prideful and he didn't give glory to God. God took Nebuchadnezzar and made him go seven years eating grass in the field. He let his hair grow long, his nails grew long. He joined ACDC. It's true. <laughs> okay, the last part's not true. Psalm 58, verse six. Oh God, shattered their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord, 58.7. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. 
Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Ouch. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away like with a whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Now, brethren, I, I would say to you, if you're going to pray an imprecatory prayer, make sure it's spirit-led. Because we've got to be very careful with stuff like this. But I will tell you this, there is a place in biblical revelation to pray for the demise of a wicked person who will not repent. And I'm putting that before you because it's in the psalm we're studying, but also to say to you, you know, Christianity is not just about us always being nice. Back to Psalm 31 and we'll finish. God is a, our God is a consuming fire. We're gonna sing it at the end. But our God is righteous and just, and he is holy. And Jesus Christ is coming to judge this world in righteousness. And when he comes, there are going to be people that are gonna to try to hide from his presence. He's not messing around. And so there's a place in our faith for this kind of thing. But we balance it with the ending portions of the psalm. How great is your goodness. God is good. 19, Psalm 31. Which thou hast stored up for those who fear thee. He stores up wrath for the wicked. Romans 2.5. But goodness for the righteous or those who are in Christ. Those who uh, thou hast wrought for those who take refuge in thee before the sons of men. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 100, verse 5. The Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. His faithfulness to all generations. Nahum 1, 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. God is good. And that is what we can celebrate despite what's going on. Thou dost hide them in the secret place, those who take refuge in God, verse 20, of thy presence. You could say in the holy of holies, if you will, spiritually. From the conspiracies of man, thou dost keep them secretly in a shelter. From the strife of tongues, God will hide us in his secret place. Psalm 27, verse uh, 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me. In his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up upon a rock. We're going to close with a benediction here, but before we do, I was praying at the bedside of a lady that was uh, very precious to us. Her name is Dee, and she's since gone home to be with the Lord, and I've been at many, you know, deathbed situations, and I, and I frankly didn't even know how to pray, and we were all praying for her healing, and the cancer had invaded her body, and and I was at a loss, and, and, and somehow Psalm 91 came to my heart, and you know, she was in her dying moments, and I, and I just said, Lord, would you be our shelter? Would you cover us? It was a sunny day. I'm, sitting, I'm kneeling in a bed, uh, by a bed. She was in the bed. I'm by the bedside um, in, in Norco. It's a, the sun sh streaming through the windows. And as I prayed, my eyes were closed. And this is no joke. All of a sudden, things got dark in that room. And it's almost as if the Lord said, I have got you in my shelter and I didn't want to open my eyes because whatever was happening spiritually, I was good to just rejoice in it. Amen? Amen. The Lord is our shelter. Closing benediction. Blessed be the Lord. He has made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. That may be Jerusalem, but we can think of Ukraine and other places. As for me, I've said in my alarm, I'm cut off from before your eyes. Down to the depths goes David one more time. Nevertheless, thou did hear my voice, the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Oh, an exhortation. Love the Lord, all you, his godly ones. This is the best thing you can do. Comfort others with the comfort with which you've been comforted by God. To love God is the best we can do. And he tells us, love the Lord, you godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. He will bless you and he will deal with the unrepentant who cause harm. And then be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Father, thank you for Psalm 31. Thank you for directing us. 
towards this wonderful psalm. It does end with be strong, take courage, all you hope in the Lord. Now I'm gonna ask you just to kind of slow your soul down just for a second. Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples are afraid and they think it's a ghost. And he says, don't be afraid. It's me. Don't let your heart be troubled. Take courage. It's, it is I. Don't be afraid. All you hope in the Lord. Now, if Jesus Christ is your hope, that hope is the anchor of your soul. And my encouragement to you is run to that hope. Run afresh to it. If you are a prodigal and you've been running away from God, away from his shelters, away from the beauty of a relationship with him, would you run back today? And if you are not a believer, Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. It's true. And he entered into this world to our battle, to our brokenness, to die on that terrible cross, to live the perfect life we could not live, to die as our substitute, to take the wrath of Almighty God, to rise to defeat our enemy death, and to give us hope. And if you don't have that hope, with your head and heart bowed, ask him into your life. Tell him you believe in who he is and what he did on the cross and how he rose from the dead. Trust him as not just your savior, but your king. Tell him you want to make him your king and build his kingdom, the one that will actually last. He'll give you the words. He knows your troubles. He knows your heart. He knows what's kept you away. Well, why don't you settle it today? Lord Jesus, come into my life. Save me, deliver me, restore me. He's, that's his business. He's in the restoration business. Father, you know every heart. You know the cry of every heart. You know the trouble of every soul. Thank you for allowing us some time to think about spiritual things and to concentrate on hope and our Bibles and truth. May you take what we've offered to you, Lord, and may you cause your people to remember what you want them to remember and forget anything that's not been valuable from me, but help them to remember promises and things that leapt off the page and hope from the encouragement of your Holy Spirit. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name.